well, thank you guys. So I didn't know what Craig was going to do. I know now. I, you know, when these people talk about those clowns over at Eastgate, I never knew. Now it's starting to, I'm making sense. I get it. Well, look, uh, we're going to get into our study this morning. Appreciate Craig. Appreciate Blake. Uh, uh, have you, have you ever been summoned for jury duty? Like who here has been summoned for jury duty? Now I am someone who does not like jury duty. Like my wife, for whatever reason, seems to like it. Uh, I, I don't. It, it, last time that I got called in, uh, it was traumatic for me, honestly. And I, so I, I was actually even, I was just in the jury pool, which is not nearly as relaxing as it sounds. Uh, I, but, <laughs> We were just waiting around for the case, you know, to start, and they were picking out the jurors who were supposed to be on. It was like an all-day thing, and it was going on. By the by, the end of day two, I was freaking out because I mean, I got, you know, I'm missing preparation for things. We had Wednesday services at the time. I was just, I mean, I was just stressed over the whole thing, and so I wasn't alone. There were a few others of us in the jury pool who started talking. And all of a sudden, we came up with the great idea. Well, let's go to the judge and see if he'll just go ahead and excuse us because we're busy people. Uh, and, and surely he'll get that. I don't know if you've ever tried to do something like that. But man, that is a lesson in humility. Uh, <laughs> he, he shot that down so immediately. And, and then with the exhaustion of one who has given this speech more times than he can count, he explained to us that jury duty is our civic duty, our civic duty. And he said it's a jury of peers. He said it's not a jury of, of retired people or people who have time on their hands, but it's a jury of peers. And that means it's going to be a hardship on anyone who's called to participate in it. And he said then, he tacked this on, he said that's just one of the costs of living in our society. And that really struck me. There was something about that, that phrase. Of course, I got it right away. I mean, I was even like saluting. I don't think you're supposed to salute a judge or whatever, but, uh, but I was thinking about that, that, you know, living as a citizen of this nation doesn't insulate me from hardship. Hardship is, is expected in light of some of our civic duties. There are times when it's going to be a hardship for us in order to participate in this society. And of course, it was a good lesson for me, but it also got me, like everything does, got me thinking about the kingdom of God uh, and our citizenship in God's kingdom. Discipleship is how we describe citizenry in God's kingdom. Uh, it's uh, we who have put our trust in Jesus to be reconciled with God and then who follow Jesus' teachings and his example. We're, uh, you know, the adherents to the Jesus way of life. That's what it means to be a disciple. It has nothing to do with, you know, all the other externals that we like to associate with that. It has to do with following Jesus's pattern and embracing his values and his, his purposes. And, and just as the judge said to me, and we're going to see it in our text today, that will include hardships that come along with this, this calling. God hasn't called people to find a little bit of space in their busy lives for God, but he's called us to, to count the cost of following Jesus with our whole lives. 
But understand, that doesn't mean, you know, that we become extra religious in life. It doesn't mean that, you know, following Jesus with my whole life, well, you know, what's the weather? I can't tell you. All I can think about is Jesus right now. It's not that. It's not trying to be extra religious about things like that, but it's about seeing that our lives become patterned around Jesus's values, what it is that Jesus taught and lived and exampled for us. So in our study of Luke this morning, we're going to consider what it means to be a disciple, or maybe more importantly, what effect this calling has on our lives. Uh, If you've got a Bible, if you want to follow along, find your way to Luke chapter 9, please. Last week, we read about the disciples' failure to be able to bring deliverance for a person who was asking for Jesus' help. And we thought about how failure is, is baked into the biblical narrative, that, you know, and, and how failure doesn't mean that it's over in God's new world. Uh, you know, that's, I, uh, you know, what we were kind of even talking about again this morning uh, uh, with, with Craig there. Today, we're going to read a series of conversations and encounter that all carry the, the same theme of what comes with this call to follow Jesus, what this means to us as disciples, as citizens of God's kingdom. So if you're there in Luke chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 46. Then his disciples began arguing. This is right after the events that we read about last time. The, the child wasn't delivered and Jesus had to take care of the situation. Verse 46, then his disciples began arguing about which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knew their thoughts. So he brought a little child to his side and he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me also welcomes my father who sent me. Whoever is the least among you is the greatest. So it's clear that the disciples didn't waste much time wallowing or regretting their failures of the past. They push right ahead and try to figure out the pecking order of their group. In my mind, I'm assuming that Peter started the whole thing. Like, he's like, hey, you guys remember when Jesus elected me Pope? I got some great ideas for a hat I'm going to wear. And then all of a sudden there's an argument. Well, who gets to wear the hat first and all of that. Now, remember, in their defense, Jesus had just told them that when they get to Jerusalem, he's going to be, you know, arrested, taken captive by his enemies. And so it's possible this dispute about greatness is the, the result of the disciples trying to retreat back to their comfort zones. Like... Let's get back to thinking of the kingdom in military concepts like, you know, generals and lieutenants and this hierarchy of authority. Let's get back to what we were expecting. And it says that Jesus knew their thoughts, which is why nobody ever played Scrabble with Jesus, because he always knew the tiles and stuff like that. That's just a little aside in case you didn't know it. And it's really not true. But either way, it says Jesus knew their thoughts and he brings a little child in the middle of the group. And I always think about this, like, where did the child come from? Like, (laughs) I love this idea that that. Jesus, when he's out doing stuff, there's always kids probably, I guess, around. And he can just pull one of them in and use them as as an illustration for one of his teachings. And so he holds this child up as an example of himself. And that's perplexing because children in the ancient world were not thought of the way we think of them today in our world. Things are radically different in in our modern world than they were back then. They they weren't protected by HRS. Uh, Honestly... And this is the truth, and this bears out, that they were just little, insignificant, not yet humans. Uh, because there were no advances in medicine or things like that, you know, mortality rates were high among children. And so there's possibility that maybe that was even a, a way to protect themselves. Just, you know, these are not yet 
humans. In most ancient languages, including the Greek that the New Testament is written in, the word for child is always in the neutered sense. In other words, there's never he or she. It's always it as a child. Children were the least in that sense. They were small and powerless and without any sort of status whatsoever within society. That is who Jesus holds up as an example of the position that he himself has taken in the world. And then he invites us to take that same position. Because he says, if you welcome the child, you welcome me. Welcome in the Greek means to take by the hand or embrace in solidarity. And so he's saying, you know, this is my path. If you're following me, this is the way you're going to follow me. If you're following me, this is how you go. This is your path too. The least will be the greatest. And, and the lesson here is pretty clear for us, uh, you know, even yet today, as people who want to rightly embody Christ's purposes, as people who want to be disciples, citizens of God's kingdom, then discipleship is a call to intentional humility and vulnerability. Jesus identifying himself with a little child is an act of intentional humility. Nobody was humbling him in this. He was intentionally putting himself in that position. And if we welcome that pattern, embrace it in solidarity, then intentional humility is our calling as well. Now, what do we mean when we say intentional humility? It doesn't mean that we walk around saying, I'm no good, I'm awful, I'm just sucking everything. It's nothing like that. Intentional humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, but as C.S. Lewis put it, it's thinking of ourselves less. Not that we as individuals are unimportant, but that we entrust our importance to God. That we find our security and our sense of worth in, in His love for us, in His acceptance and value of us so that we can then begin to be outward looking and take the risk of loving others. And what a revelation this is. When, when heaven sets the patterns for earth, it's not going to be survival of the fittest. We're not going to be the result of some evolutionary process where the strongest and the meanest and the loudest and the angriest people are able to step on everyone's neck to get to the top. It's not going to be like that in God's kingdom. No, Jesus tosses all of that on its head and he points to the smallest, most vulnerable, the least intimidating kind of human on the planet, a child, someone small enough you could miss them if you're not looking for them. That's me, Jesus says. And that's you too, if you want to follow me. Well, Rob, you know, I, I don't mind being intentionally humble as long as everybody knows how humble I'm being in this. As long as when it comes to humility, everybody knows I'm number one. So, I mean, so, okay, so, so when I'm, see, I'm laying these things out, we're talking about what these things are that, that are revealed to us in Scripture. And so like we learned last week, we don't do this well this is an ongoing practice, something that we put into practice day by day, learning how to do this. Our patterns and systems, you know, in, in this world, in this broken world, they don't accommodate what it is that Jesus says. They don't accommodate it well. And so we're going to have to, to put some thought into this. We're never going to drift into this kind of humility that Jesus is talking about. We have to choose it. But choosing humility is a very important part of a life of following Jesus, of being a disciple. Okay, we'll keep reading here. Verse 49. 
John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons. We told him to stop because he isn't part of our group. But Jesus said, don't don't stop him. Anyone who isn't against you is for you. I love this section. This is so delightful to me because even just on the surface of the text, John sounds whiny to me. He's just, you know, that's how a lot of judgment starts, right? I saw, I saw, you know, so-and-so doing that. I raised... I raised four kids, and we heard this statement a lot. <laughs> Mom, I saw Jessica leave school early, you know, and it was never anything positive. They were, they were consistently blind to anything good that their siblings were doing. But that's what John's doing here. He's not trying to give Jesus an update about ministry advances or something like that. He's making a complaint, and he wants, to, he wants Jesus to affirm his judgment against this hacker who's working with their system and not part of it. And the irony is, is, is so, I mean, it's extreme, really, because we just read, just prior to this, the disciples failed to cast out a, a, a demon from a kid. And so apparently between that failure and this conversation, they witnessed some unknown dude success, successfully casting out a spirit in his name, even though he wasn't part of their group. And instead of approaching him with gratitude or like, whoa, how cool is this? You know, hey, someone is successful. That's awesome. Or, or, you know, that like, hey, an afflicted person got healed. That's, that is really wonderful. No, instead of that response, their pride was hurt. And so they give a cease and desist. You know, stop, stop doing this using our trade secrets. You can't do that. And I can imagine in this moment, this is where those, one of those moments where Jesus just had to do a face palm. It had to be like, stop, don't stop him. Guys, I mean, if he's using my name, then he's with us. We'll have plenty of demons and enemies to go around. You don't have to make new ones. Don't stop those doing good in my name. No matter who they are, they're with us. This is a huge statement that Jesus is making here. And it's an important lesson that discipleship is not going to claim superior exclusivity. The disciples seem to see themselves as the leaders of this whole following Jesus thing that has been started on the land. They're the in crowd and not this interloper trying to steal their glory using, you know, Jesus's name. The, the, the church, and this is the thing that we always have to keep in mind. I've always said church would be so easy if it didn't involve people. But the church is a group of humans and, and the impulses of humans to be exclusive in our approach to anything especially when it comes to something important like spirituality and church, it, there's always this desire to be the superior ones, to be the ones who've got it down, who do it right, who know what's going on. And, and you know, any group of humans is going to do that. I've been meeting with Pastors United. You know that we did that uh, series a, a while back here, but I was asking a pastor from an all-black congregation how he saw us ever moving past this huge segregation we've got between white and black congregations on any given Sunday morning. And I asked him, I, would, I said, what would it take for someone like me or, or, or uh, you know, as a white church leader, if I were to come and visit or wanted to, wanted to minister within a black congregation, what would it take? Like, what would be necessary from my side on this? And I know that seems probably like an odd question, but I think it's an important kind of question that we have to start asking because we've got this long history and legacy that's been left to us that we need to you know, begin understanding if we're ever going to be able to move past it. 
And so I asked him that. What would it take? And he took his time thinking about it. He was very thoughtful and he was gracious in what he says. But what he says is kind of intense. You know, it's something you have to think about. But he just smiled and he said, it's going to take humility. And he went on to explain that, that there's often an attitude when white leaders or churches interact with black churches that white is right. In other words, you know, you're, uh, you know, often, there's often this condescending attitude that's present in that. Like, well, your, your worship is very entertaining and all, but we do it right. We've got the cool songs. Uh, you know, your theology is quaint, but we've got it right. Ours is better. And oh, here's the thing. I see his point. Up until a year ago, I had not read any black theologians. I've changed that now. But, but you know, it wasn't part of my process. I could see where even unintentionally I was participating in that, that white is the right way. And, and so I really want to think about his response concerning that because I believe it applies to what we're reading in Luke here. If we can grasp what Jesus is saying here, it really addresses a problem of not just a segregated church, but the way the church is divided all over the place in so many ways. I mean, Jesus makes a broad application when he says anyone who isn't against us is for us. That is that's without qualification, except for the fact that you're with Jesus, right? I mean, that includes that's inclusive of a lot of people. Jesus calls us to live in a world that is not us and them. He calls us to live in a world that is us and those who are not us, but also aligned with God's love through Jesus Christ. It's a lot more words, but it's more appropriate to what it is that he's saying. And this is a practice then that we have to learn, learning to see ourselves only as participants in God's vast activity in this world, not the owners of it. And, and hopefully this can curb that human tendency to that desire for prestige for being the ones who have it figured out, who know how to do it right. Maybe we can practice this. Maybe we can start, you know, just even in our normal conversations, being positive and giving positive reports on those who we meet who are not us, or they're not Eastgate, but are aligned with Jesus and therefore are for us. Maybe we can see what we can learn from that. So discipleship under Jesus isn't going to claim exclusivity. We'll keep reading here, verse 51. As the time drew near for him, for Jesus to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village didn't welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, uh, uh, there's a lot to that statement there. We'll unpack that as we go in here. Verse 54, when, G, when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But hey, these are our people. Uh, <laughs> but Jesus turned and rebuked them. And I've got it in brackets here because the oldest translation, or the oldest manuscripts that we have don't include this. It's, there's a compelling argument that this shouldn't be in here, but it's not a foolproof argument. So I'm leaving it in. So we'll keep reading. Uh, Jesus turned and rebuked them. And uh, he said, you don't realize what your hearts are like. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. So he went on. So they went on to another village. So here we find, you know, we're entering the end game for Jesus in the, in the Lucian narrative here. Uh, he's got to go to Jerusalem, and that's where the cross awaits him. That's where he's going to go and provide what it is we all need to be reconciled with God, to, to provide what's necessary to heal this world. 
And on the road, we have this religious and political conflict that suddenly erupts. The Samaritan people to the north of Israel did not like Israelites. And Israelites had the same feeling towards Samaritan people. They were always at odds on on almost everything. So most Jewish pilgrims who were making their way from the north to go down to Jerusalem would take a long way around to bypass Samaria so that they wouldn't go through there. They didn't want to interact with those guys at all. Jesus, it says, is resolute. He's in, he's, it, he feels an imperative to get to Jerusalem, so he's not going to take the long way around. He's cutting straight through Samaria, Samaritan territory. Uh, and, of course, he's got a lot of disciples, and a lot of people are following him. So it's a pretty big entourage that's heading through. And so some people from the villages come to meet the procession on the road, and they tell him, you guys need to go around like everybody else does. We don't want your kind here, is basically what they're saying. And so the brothers, James and John, go to the obvious solution when Israel is threatened and disrespected by your neighbor. Let's burn them all, Jesus. Let's take care of this. And Jesus rebukes that idea because he can't set out for Jerusalem to bring salvation to the world, but also buy in to one of the tensions that's tearing the world apart. It's a conflict of intentions here. And and it's really a not-so-subtle instruction that discipleship is about helping people, not condemning people, not harming people. This tells us a lot. You know, when, when you see a response like this, it tells us a lot about a person's view of God. James and John seem to think of God as a general, and he's got stockpiles of heavenly napalm, and he's just ready to throw it at whoever, you know, crosses him. And I would say... I mean, I would say there's a lot of preachers in churches who have that same view. And so we have to. We're not here to to school anyone else. We're here to get into the Word and figure out what it means for us. So what is our view? Like, what is our view of heaven? What do we see God's activity to be all about? What 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 do we imagine the activities of heaven as they're invading earth? What do we imagine that looking like? What's the fundamental disposition of the God we envision in Christ? We know what James and John thought, and we also know that Jesus rebuked it. And as disciples of Jesus, how do we see ourselves? Do we see ourselves as the moral police out to point out every violation and call down judgment on what we see as wrong? Or do we see ourselves as beggars who found food who want to show other beggars where to find that food? It's a very important understanding of God. It's a very important and fundamental shift that has to take place in our thinking about not only the God we serve, but the mission that we're on as we serve this God. John 3.17, God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. We always stop short. John 3.16, we all know, we all love. We keep forgetting about John 17. How can we shape our discipleship around that truth? God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Okay, well, finishing up, verse 57. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, well, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. He said to another person, come, follow me. The man agreed, but he said, Lord, uh, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the, and it's, if you're reading an NLT, it says spiritually, 
dead, that is inserted by the translators. That word spiritually is not there. That's, so that actually ends up being a eisegesis on their part in the translation. So just forget that. Let the dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. All right, I don't need to explain that, so we'll just move on and you can go home and think about that. Okay, so this is a, this is a lot, okay? So somebody comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. You know, I, I want to be one of your disciples, Jesus. I want to do this thing you guys are, are doing. And Jesus answers that that vermin and sky mice have comfortable places to live in, but he, and he uses the, the messianic term, the son of man, the Messiah, doesn't have a permanent address. What an intriguing response. And you have to think, like, why did he even say that? Like, housing was never even mentioned in this. We don't know anything about this guy, except that he declares that he wants to follow Jesus. And we don't know what prompted Jesus to say this, but we know, uh, and, and, and actually we don't know what the guy's response is. So again, it's one of those things that's left hanging, uh, probably so that we can uh, supply the re- response ourselves. Then Jesus asks someone to follow him, and the guy says, well, first let me bury my dad. And so I guess in case we thought the first thing that happened there was really bad, it gets a little worse still. And Jesus says, you know, this thing, and we're kind of like, come on, Jesus. I mean, (laughs) the guy go bury his dad. I mean, go to a funeral. Why do you got to be so mean? Uh, But we have to have a better view of what's actually taking place here in the, in the, the words that are being said by both people. For one thing, it's unlikely, if not impossible, that the guy's father had just passed away. Because according to Jewish tradition, funerals had to take place within three days, usually the actual day of a person's demise. Um, and, and so if his dad had just died, he's not going to be out there where Jesus is or wandering around in Samaria or whatever. There's evidence that to this day, this is an idiom. A saying in the Near East, to bury my father meant that his father was elderly and he wanted to wait until he passed away, received his inheritance, could set his house in order, and then head out there and follow Jesus. So in other words, you know, I'll follow you, Jesus. Just first let me get my inheritance so I can afford to to go traipsing around Galilee with y'all. The third guy gets a response that seems even harsher still. You know, I just want to go say goodbye to Ma. I'll be back. And Jesus says, no, in essence, if you... If, if you look back, you're going to miss the kingdom. You're going to miss what's happening in here. So what do we make of this stuff? Because this is intense. The one thing that we see from the last two encounters is the motif of the words, first let me. First let me doesn't really fit with a life where someone else is calling the shots. Like, person goes into the military, and, and again, we're not trying to make militaristic comparisons between the activities of the kingdom of God, but we think in terms of a place where you're committing your life to something in the military, you're rarely saying, oh, you know, of course, officer, I'll do this, but first let me, you know, go handle this or whatever. Those things don't usually go over well. I'm not speaking from my own experience, but I have spoken to others who've been in the military who can uh, probably confirm that. Uh, but, you know, as it's a lot of this comes back to like what the judge said to me in the jury pool. This isn't about you, is what he's basically saying. It's about your civic duty, and there will be hardships associated with that call. And I believe what we learn from this may be the hardest truth of all for us as 21st century American Christians. 
that discipleship may cost us our temporal comfort and security. Housing, financial security, a sense of belonging, those are some of the higher needs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Jesus calls us to set those aside in pursuit of his kingdom. Now, it doesn't mean that we're never going to have a house to live in or money in the bank or a good family who loves us. It just means that we're leaving those things in God's hands. And if there is a conflict between having that and following Christ in his mission and his purposes and the values of his kingdom, then we choose the kingdom. Paul reminds us that the suffering that we endure now isn't worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed, but there is suffering in the present. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that. So we may forgo temporal comfort and security as we follow Jesus. I mean, listen, how often do we get perplexed? And and I would say again, this ends up being unique to 21st century American Christianity but we get perplexed, you know, I'm following Jesus, I'm doing everything right, and but still things are falling apart in my business or my relationships or whatever. Why is this happening to me? But we were never promised immunity from all hardships in a life of following Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have big troubles. He said that in John 16, but then he followed it with take heart because I've overcome the world. What we were promised is the grace to walk through whatever hardship we may face. We were promised the ability to live a coping life, even in the midst of some suffering. So it's an importance for all of us to step into the shoes of these would-be disciples who wanted to follow Jesus and ponder this question. Are we willing to follow Jesus even though it may mean we may suffer? Am I willing to keep holding on to this faith that's quite disposable in our society now? Am I willing to keep at this, even if it may mean I'll suffer? Discipleship happens when our commitment to following Jesus takes precedence over every other of life's demands. And again, I come back to what we said last week. We don't do this well. So this is not to set up an impossible standard that is going to make you feel condemned because you think, oh, well, and I just, there's some parts I'm still holding on to. Listen, everybody in this room can say that same thing. All of the disciples that followed Jesus that we're reading about could say the same thing. Every hero of the Christian faith said the same thing. There are parts all of us struggle with to give up or to to be okay with if we're going to lose that in order to follow Jesus. But it's about that overall commitment. Will I just walk away from this then? Will I just bail? Will I keep at this and trust that God, by His Spirit, will do the reshaping that needs to happen in my life and in my heart to where I can make the right decisions when those decisions are necessary? God's love is what makes the cost worth it all. We may give up some place in this passing world, but we've got the promise of a never-ending, eternal love and life. We've got the promise of identity and security and stability that is not dependent on the crumbling, shifting stuff of this broken world. We're leaning on everlasting arms, and they'll never let us go. 
So let's count the cost of following Jesus, but let's remember that in Him, all things are made new. And even what seems like loss here becomes gain we could never calculate or understand. If we do that, we can overcome this world system. We can have a freedom to to help others and we won't be so obsessed with our own troubles or our own lacks. We'll have, have the hope that we need to share with someone else who may be suffering. Because we have the knowledge that one day, as we keep at this, one day we'll be embraced by the one who loved us unto death and we'll hear whispered into our ear, our own ear, well done, my good and faithful friend. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we want to take this seriously. You know, we don't take ourselves seriously, Lord, but we do take you seriously. We take your word seriously and we, we, we see before us the challenge of what it is that we read about today. And we also know, Lord, that's a challenge that we cannot accomplish on our own. We need you. We need your presence. We need the infilling of your spirit. And so, Father, for all of us who have embraced this call, who've, who've accepted your invitation to join your family, to be a part of your kingdom, for all of us who've done that, I pray, Lord, that you pour your spirit out on us, that you enable us to take up this radical call of living life the way Jesus lived it, in service to others, not me first, but looking to the needs of our fellow human being to represent an eternal love in this world that this world so desperately needs. And Father, for anybody who's never made that commitment, you may be here today and this is just something to do on a Sunday morning. Father, I pray that your word does the work that it does. And I ask that you, by your spirit, will plow up fallow ground, will allow the seed of your word to come to fruition, will turn hearts to follow you, to embrace the salvation that Jesus provides and take up this life of discovering who Jesus is and how he's lived in this world. These are the things I pray for this gathering here today, Lord. Let it be a reality in in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Listen, before we break up here this morning, uh, somebody just gave me a prayer request. There's a a dear couple who volunteer regularly at New Day. Um, They're... uh, son just got out of prison and they were working with him and he is just overdosed so let's pray for their family and here's the thing i know that like we've we've been coming with some heavy prayer requests at the end of these services but it's kind of like what we were even just talking about today right this isn't about us this is about seeking what's best for others so let's pray for for that family father we pray for them right now we just ask you lord god to to wrap your arms of love around them and bring your comfort to bear There are things that take place, Lord, that are too big for us, too big for our words to be able to express even our sorrow or our or our um, desires for help. And so we just ask, Lord, that you comfort them and let your grace come to bear 
and that you encourage and stabilize them. Father, we put all of them and we put their son in your hands. And we know that in your grace, all things get resolved. And so we put them in the, the, the hands of grace that we trust in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I know we've kept you here a long time today, but let's speak this blessing on each other uh, before we leave here today. If you need prayer for anything, the men's group is going to be here. They'd love to pray with you, anoint you with oil if you need healing. Uh, and uh, So please feel free to come on down to the front. They'll be here to do that. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Go in peace, you children of God. Thank you for giving blood like you did today.